Hey, sexy listeners. We have an excellent guest today, Dr. Jennifer Berman. You may know her because she's an internationally renowned urologist and a New York Times bestselling author. And you've probably seen her on TV. She's America's leading expert and authority in the field of female sexual health. She has been on Oprah. She's been on Good Morning America. She was an advisor for the Today Show. She's been on CNBC, CNN. And she was a recurring co-host on The Doctors. She truly is an expert in this field of female sexual health. We are supported by Uberlube for sex and so much more. Welcome to The Trouble With Sex, where we get up close and personal with leading experts to expose the naked truth about sex, love, and relationships. I'm Dr. Tammy. It seems like all of us as women throughout our life cycle struggle with this idea of like our hormones are messed up at Mm -hmm. some level, whether in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. What's going on there? And even in our 20s, you know, when we're experiencing PMS and and moodiness and changes. So hormones are something that affect women throughout their entire lifespan. And my daughter, who's a teenager, totally hormonal. 14, yeah. (laughs) And that, excuse me, she's 16 now. It started at 14, you know, the, the moods. But it is a topic that that I think is important in particular because as women um, approach their mid to late 30s, early 40s, that is considered the perimenopause. And those women often get lost. 30s is perimenopause? Mid to late 30s. So like 35 to 37 and up. That's when hormones start to fluctuate. It's not like you're menopausal, but there's ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And that's when the subtle and in some women, more not so subtle symptoms begin, and they may be disruption in sleep, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, worsening of moodiness, more irritable and short fuse. I just thought it was PMS. <laughs> like, what's the difference? Well, PMS, it's similar. It's withdrawal of estrogen. So estrogen withdrawal causes sleep disruption, moodiness, sometimes sexual function changes, loss in libido or difficulty uh, achieving orgasm, vaginal dryness, weight gain. Oftentimes women will say, I really, I, you know, I'm eating a broccoli spear a day, <laughs> and, and I'm and all of a sudden my gut, my weight. stomach, it's just there. Exactly. Yeah. And they'll often attribute it, especially at that time, to other things going on in their lives. Like I just got divorced, or my son just left for college, or I just lost a, lost a parent or a job, or whatever other things going on in life that you know could be causing stress. And then frequently these women will see a healthcare practitioner and they get put on Prozac or Paxil, Zolov, an SSRI, which then makes these problems worse, in particular low libido and orgasm. And weight gain. And and weight gain. So that's a time that I feel is really critical to capture women and to encourage women to speak to if they are experiencing those symptoms. Because back in the day when I first started this work, I, you know, they thought I was like a pariah and insane for treating women in this this demographic with hormones. Because they were too young? Well, they thought they were too young. Their ovaries are still working. And yes, that, you know, 
their ovaries are still working. But the other issue is, is that their labs are, quote unquote, within the normal range. Well, what's normal for you, and I've learned this, isn't necessarily normal for me. Mm -hmm. And where you feel great at an estrogen of 230, I'm okay at 90. So it's individually tailored for each woman and every woman is different. And And the range— And isn't that subclinical area where you're not quite diagnostic, just— you feel miserable. Yes, and and your and your labs may quote unquote be within normal range. And the problem is, is that the normal range, for example, estrogen is from four to two hundred and eighty. So if you're, you know, where it so, right, so if you're at you a fall, five, you know, what are you? So, <laughs> right. the, so the labs. So I use labs as a reference point to to define when a when a woman is optimized or not. And it's not we treat the patient, not the number. And I learned that. So I started doing this, you know, back in the day, and it was considered extremely controversial. However, today, more and more gynecologists, and now there's research and papers and evidence-based, you know, therapy in this category are are treating perimenopausal women with symptoms who are symptomatic. And there are not risks to that, and there are actually benefits to it, in particular from the standpoint of quality of life, sense of well-being, delaying, if not staving off more severe symptoms later. And when women aren't treated early, then by the time they become menopausal and are homicidal and ready to kill everyone around them, it's a lot harder, you know, to catch up at that point. So if they've been on a low dose of hormone replacement therapy Mm -hmm. or something, then it's easier later on when they're in menopause. It is easier. The transition is easier and it's easier to treat them. You know, one option, and frequently gynecologists will put put women on hormonal contraceptives, which gives a very low dose of estrogen. I'm not a huge fan of that because there's other side effects and things relate that can impact libido. And also, um, it's not enough estrogen as far as I'm concerned. Now, you said that there's really no risk. Well, so is you know, a lot of women are afraid if they have cancer in their family and what the risks and side effects and, mm-hmm. and they're scared. So what, what do you tell those women? Well, the debunking of of the estrogen myth was that estrogen causes breast cancer. And that is now, that's not the case. Estrogen does not cause breast cancer. Estrogen causes breast glandular tissue to grow. It is the combination of estrogen plus progesterone, synthetic estrogen plus synthetic estrogen over a period of seven to 10 years that can cause a slightly increased risk in breast cancer, of breast cancer in women. So it's something that women need to be aware of. It's something that women need to be informed of. Now, if women have a strong family history of breast cancer, have the BRCA gene and other things, you know, those things need to be taken into consideration. This may be shocking to you, but my mother died of breast cancer. My sister has breast cancer and is in remission. And I, um, there's some gene issues. I don't even know what they are because I am now 55 menopausal and not on hormones. I like am a terrorist. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I can't sleep. I can't function. I can't, I'm moody. I'm incompatible with life. Mm-hmm. So the quality of life is equally as important as quantity of life. And I went over with the oncologist and the internist and GYN what my risks are given the, this is my family history. This is my chance of getting breast cancer, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And then now adding 
hormone replacement therapy onto that, how much more does my risk increase? And it was not substantially more. Mm -hmm. So I chose, and I, I was like the pioneer. I'm a pioneer in so many ways in terms of my the, the field, in terms of my being a guinea pig in this in this circumstance, that I um, I chose to um, continue with the to hormones. continue. And yeah. she said, well, you know, let's check your genes for this and that. And I said, I don't want to check my genes because I'm not going to go on tamoxifen or raloxifen or whatever. I'm not. I'm just not going to do it. And here I am now, you know, 10 years without, you know, I still get go through the screening and everything. Mm -hmm. But I think that each case needs to be handled individually. Mm -hmm. And quality of life is equally as important as quantity of life. And when women are riddled and paralyzed by fear of what they might get, mm -hmm. it really, um, you know, takes a toll. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I'm, I just turned 57 and I'm postmenopausal now, I think officially. It's been a couple of years. And I have symptoms of menopause and I've been on hormone replacements, different kinds, different creams and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I always get symptoms of like PMS. My face breaks out. I start to get uh, hormonal. <laughs> I start to get like, I feel like I'm going to kill someone. And so I go off it. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there's people who respond well, there's people who shouldn't be on it, there's people who just don't have the right dose, there's ways that you can determine what people should be on. I remember talking to an endocrinologist who said, if we had the specific enough dosing and the specific enough ways to pinpoint hormonal replacement, we wouldn't need SSRIs. We wouldn't need antidepressants. We could really treat people by balancing out their hormones. But sometimes it's it's not specific enough. Well, it, yes and no. So it is, there's only so many options and doses that are commercially available, FDA approved and bioidentical hormones. So you don't have like, you know, intricate titration options. So that's frequently why some doctors opt to quote unquote compound these medications in the form of creams or tinctures or drops or lozenges or whatever. And that's where you get into trouble. So when, if you were a applying the, the progesterone cream and this, you know, that sort of when things are compounded, the only time I compound medications is if they are not commercially available because there's no dose. Like, for instance, testosterone is not FDA approved for use in women. There's no dosages for it. Oh, so you have to compound that. Interesting. But progesterone and estrogen are. And we have decades of data and thousands, hundreds of thousands of women that have been on these medications to know exactly at each moment in the day from the time she takes the medication to the time she goes to sleep, what the levels are supposed to be in her blood to... to to get a, a sense of, um, sense at least for me, a sense of comfort in prescribing those medications. So where women get into trouble and where some doctors get into trouble is, that, or get influenced by the patients is, well, I really want a cream and what about bioidentical? And they don't necessarily understand that bioidentical prescriptions can be commercially available. That You can buy in CVS. They're wow. synthesized from plants. They are natural the same as your body makes, that you don't need a little guy with a white hat in the back of a pharmacy, you know, mixing things up for them to be natural and, um, and bioidentical. And so when you start compounding creams, every lot is different. The absorption from one pharmacy to another is different. You can't exactly titrate the correct dose when you're putting on a cream or a drop. So that's well, may have been. Really, I don't. I'm not for sure what you were taking. It's but really it's, smart, though, what you're saying, because it is hard to to mm -hmm. dose out and titrate out a cream or mm -hmm. whatever. Because you can just, you know, you can put it in 
uh, uh, fingernails right. worth. And what you're describing with the you know, oily skin or acne or moodiness is imbalance. Either you were progesterone dominant or estrogen dominant, too much of one, and too little of one or the other. And that's what happens. When Interesting. Can you tell our listeners what is bioidentical? Like, what does that mean versus uh, different kinds of hormones? So bioidentical means the same as your ovaries and or adrenal glands would make. So it's bioidentical to what your body makes. And instead of synthetic, synthetic is a synthetic compound that is similar or identical in action to what your body makes, but not the same. So bioidentical is the same as your body makes and derived from plants or natural sources. And bioidentical hormones, there is now an FDA-approved bioidentical oral prescription hormone replacement therapy that is brand new. So I was excited to see that. And there's many bioidentical hormone options, the mini bell patch, you know, there's um, transdermal patches that are bioidentical. So there's progesterone that's bioidentical. Um, so you don't need to compound or go outside or seek, you know, alternative means to get get the correct mm-hmm. dosages. Mm-hmm. The only time, as I mentioned, that that I think it's appropriate is when the dose is not available and or that medication is mm-hmm. not FDA approved. So let's talk about how this influences uh, women and desire. Because really what women would come to me for in my practice is a lack of desire. They feel like, you know, they can get aroused if they if they work at it, but they just don't have that feeling anymore, particularly through menopause or as they get older, perhaps because of their hormone level changes. Um, What do you recommend as far as the way that you treat women around their sexual health? Is it just hormones? Are there other things that you recommend? No, well, there are other things, but hormones are a big part of it. And low waning sexual desire with age and menopause is is a normal natural occurrence and, and and it impacts many many women now the reason for that is aside from i'm not i'm not going to address the emotional, relational, you know, partner issues, the things that are going on that can also impact intimacy and, and motivation to be sexual. It's All off that the table. aside, then just dealing with the raw human being and the science is as we age, hormone levels decline. So optimizing it's not just estrogen, it's estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And testosterone is the hormone that impacts libido in men as well as women. It impacts lean muscle mass versus fat mass, metabolism, energy, not only physical energy, your endurance, but also emotional energy. The joie de vie, let's go to the gym, let's go to the museum, like the emotional energy and physical energy are testosterone driven. So as women age, and men for that matter, testosterone levels decline. Now, that that said, treatment with testosterone does not improve libido in all women. And we haven't understood that. Even if a woman has low libido, you've increased her testosterone. Her testosterone levels now are super physiologic even, which we learned that we need to get a little above the range because what's in your bloodstream doesn't always get into the cells, so we have to go higher. Even in those circumstances, women will still, you know, complain of, lack of interest or loss of loss of libido. And that is a, you know, that remains kind of a conundrum in this field of sexual medicine. Why women might, in those women frequently, they, it wasn't like a sudden decline with age. They chronically felt sort of mm-hmm, apathetic mm-hmm. towards sex. Now there's two new FDA approved medications that are not hormonal for 
low sexual desire in women. One is called Addy, mm -hmm. which works through the brain and central nervous system in the serotonin category. And the other one is called Vilesi, which is an injection, also FDA approved, ironically, for premenopausal women with low sexual desire. So women above the age, I think, of 55 can't get it covered are not weren't part mm -hmm. of the initial studies but mm -hmm. they're they are expanding that so those two new medications one works through the serotonin system by lisi through dopamine both through the brain and central nervous system in the areas um, of the brain that impact motivation the good news is that there are options that don't just involve hormones that Premenopausal women that may not have hormone imbalance have options now that it's being recognized as a medical condition, not only by physicians in the medical community, but by the FDA, um, which I think is really groundbreaking from where we started. And and what happens when one of the reasons that women stop wanting to have sex is because they have pain? You know, a lot of mm -hmm. the people that come to me, they complain about sexual pain or in, you know, worst case scenario, vulvodynia mm -hmm. or, you know, sometimes it's vaginal dryness, but sometimes it could be something worse. Well, yes. Anything that affects comfort, sensation, arousal is going to impact a woman's motivation to be sexual. So the first in instance was assuming everything was, was functioning properly. Even when orgasm kind of fades, as women age, they'll say it's less intense. It's harder to come by. You know, the contractions aren't as good. Sometimes I don't have one. The cost-benefit analysis doesn't even pay off frequently. So even that can impact a woman's, mm -hmm. you know, motivation to be sexual. Now, if you add pain on top of it, anything that can create discomfort with intimacy or penetration is going to um, affect motivation and desire. And in those circumstances, those, you know, to me, it's that's that's almost easier because assuming we can affect or impact and improve the pain, then the woman will um, will be more motivated. And frequently, if you ask them that question, they'll say, yes, if I didn't have pain, I want to have sex. I love my husband. Ugh. If I didn't have this, you know, I, everything would be great. Yeah, it's easy to avoid mm -hmm. something that's painful. So when we come back from our break, we're going to ask Dr. Berman, what do you do about sexual pain? If you're a woman, what do you do about the dryness? What do you do about the pain? So stay tuned. We'll be right back. So let me tell you about Uberloop. As a sex therapist and as a woman, I recommend this to everyone. It's got no scent. It's silky feeling. It hydrates your skin. You can use it on your hair. And it comes in these small, discreet bottles that you can even bring on an airplane. Check out uberlube.com. The most common reason why women may experience discomfort or pain is due to vaginal dryness or urogenital atrophy, thinning of the lining of the vagina, which occurs mm. as women age. I hate that. I hate even thinking about it because <laughs> I'm aging and I know that's what's happening to me. And it's painful. But no matter how much lube, it feels like, you know, it's still painful sometimes. Yeah, it's still burning, irritated, itchy. The other thing that can cause vaginal dryness and not menopausal or aging women is hormonal contraceptives. Yeah, frequently young women on on hormonal contraceptives. I don't think they will know experience that. Vaginal they dryness. don't tell you that when they no, give they you the pill. They don't tell you that, and then also low libido that can happen too to young yeah. women. So thinning um, of the lining of the vagina with aging and menopause is the most common reason. Other reasons why can be inflammatory conditions. Um, one that you mentioned earlier, vulvodynia, which isn't as a common, but it does impact a lot of women. 
Vulvodynia is pain in the opening of the introitus or the vagina, typically at the five and seven o'clock position. And women will report feeling like ground glass, tearing, burning, sharp. I've um, had that. It's awful. <laughs> pain, typically with insertion of anything, a finger, a penis, a tampon, anything, but sometimes even without. And that is a really challenging problem. And the, what, why women have that or where that comes from, that's another conundrum. They've, you know, so frequently it's related to having a prior um, urinary tract infection, vaginal infection, or yeast infections. Sometimes it's secondary to a herpes outbreak. Sometimes it's idiopathic. We have no idea why. Sometimes it's Some, a food allergy. Sometimes it can be exacerbated by food. And those women that have, quote unquote, allergies or an autoimmune sort of um, sensitivity, they will frequently have other symptoms, not just that. Right. So it, bladder, interstitial cystitis, surgeons, right. lupus, fibromyalgia, quote unquote, history of Lyme, or the way that I think of it and the way that I explain it is that it's the reason why it's happening is that there's irritation and inflammation around the small nerve fibers in that area. But they don't just pick that area. That's where you're feeling it. It's all over. It's everywhere. That's where it's manifesting and that's what's causing you discomfort. But that inflammation doesn't just show up in that little one millimeter spot of your opening. It's happening all throughout your body. Wow. That's you, just, a- you just solved like a whole problem for me because I lived in Connecticut and had Lyme disease three times at least. Wow. And my kids have had it. You know, it's the Mm -hmm. hot bed of Lyme disease and have had interstitial cystitis, have had chronic urinary tract infections, had the vulvodynia problem, even going – and I'm allergic to antibiotics. So they would give me all kinds of anti-inflammatories and everything else. And Mm -hmm. there's this this experience of the die-off, like when the spirochetes die off in your body. And it would feel like knives coming out of my vagina. Nobody ever told me that it was the inflammation throughout my entire body. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. And that it's the soft tissues and Mm -hmm. and that you would feel it down there because that's the most painful. It's much better now, now that my Lyme symptoms have Mm -hmm. sort of decreased. And now that I'm in California. But it can flare. (laughs) But Uh, it can flare. Like what you mentioned earlier, due to certain foods, due to stress for sure. And if you're not balanced, you know, with your hormones, it can it or can play. excessive sex weekends. <laughs> excessive sex weekends can play. Yeah, it can like play inten- anything. Intense, yeah. you know, intercourse. Mm. If I have a lot of intercourse, it's it's mm-hmm. painful. Well, yeah, and the fact that you're you're menopausal or postmenopausal and not on hormones right now, so friction traction will cause you know. That's not uncommon, but it should be able to sort of restore normalcy, you know, all things considered. The treatments for vulvodynia we were talking is these vaginal rejuvenation treatments that are now being marketed to improve the function and appearance of, you know, the internal vagina function, outside appearance, whatever, have been really effective in helping women with vulvovaginal pain due to vulvodynia. I've had a lot of success with that um, because what it functions to do is increase new nerve growth. So old, the, the nerve inflammation is mitigated, new nerves bloom along with in, new blood vessels, along with a new epithelial lining. And it's been really a great adjunct to my vulvodynia regimens, you know, having these new So um, tell us exactly what those treatments are, because in the world of sex therapy, there's some controversy about does it work, does it not work? Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly we're not just talking about 
just for appearance sake, but even in the treatment realm, like what exactly are you doing that you think is therapeutic and mm-hmm. really helpful? Yeah. So taking, you know, aesthetics out of it, because, mm-hmm. you know, that's not my my focus or area, um, but from function. So from the same way, the function of the vagina and the sensation of it. So the perceived sensation of pleasure or pain by, by the patient. That's what my focus is. And these new modalities that involve or that utilize radio frequency heat or laser or light that have become FDA approved for quote unquote vaginal rejuvenation, although they don't use that term anymore. But what term do they use? Like vaginal resurfacing or optimizing vaginal health. Like the rejuvenation issue was, was controversial. became controversial. Yeah. And then also they they were touting for you know tightness and why do we want to be tighter and what the implications are that and what that suggests. And the way that I wrap my brain around the quote unquote tightness thing because patient will come in I want it to be tighter or that I don't want to be too tight because I'm already too tight. Whatever it is, is that it's not really tightness in terms of like a, you know, OJ's glove, the leather glove that was, you know, you, you can't put his fit anything in, in it. Yeah. It's not like that tight. It's That's more, such a great comparison. It's more of a pillowy. What happens is, is the epithelial lining gets thicker and fuller. So it's more of a pillowy plush plumping than a tightening of a hole, so to speak. And, and, it, and the reason why it's tightening or plumping is due to rejuvenation of the tissue. So increase, improving the epithelial lining, increasing vascular and new nerve growth, improving the collagen and elastin. So it's revitalizing, you know, the, the vaginal and sub-epithelial. Um, so do people have to come in for like a dozen treatments or do you do it once or how does that work? No, it's a series of three, tre- all of them pretty mm-hmm. much, no matter what, you know, they have different names and different, whether right. it be light or heat, are three treatments that, that based on the studies and the research and the clinical trials, a series of three treatments, four to six weeks apart. The remodeling of the tissue and collagen continues over a period of weeks, sometimes months, even after the treatment. So to optimize the result, to get the best result and have it last, it's recommended that the women undergo three treatments. Many women will report improvement after one treatment. They'll say, oh, it's great. It's better. My inco-. And also, by the way, it helps with incontinence, stress urinary incontinence. They'll say, you know, my incontinence is better. My lubrication is better and everything's great. What about for women like post-chemo, post-cancer treatment? It's great for those women because yeah. those women can't take um, hormones. They yeah. are not able to, you know, whether it be due to ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, cervical cancer, breast cancer, mm-hmm. those are women that frequently aren't able to use hormone replacement mm-hmm. therapy. And these these treatments are amazing for that. Mm-hmm. They're a great option for women that have undergone chemotherapy or radiation therapy, for sure. And then there are women that are on hormone replacement therapy that still, 30 to 60% of women that are taking hormone replacement therapy still require some form of vaginal treatment. Mm-hmm. The, just because you're taking hormones doesn't mean your vagina is included in that. Mm-hmm. So women will also have to use something vaginally. And then there are many women that don't want to have to do anything vaginally anymore. I don't want to have to do vaginally. I don't want to do the cream. I don't know. I want to, you know, just fix this. And, um, you know, so it's great in those circumstances also. So what about for the women that don't want vaginal rejuvenation or whatever we're calling it these days, what do you, let's just back it up a little bit. What do you recommend for them, like to use lube, to masturbate, to use vibrators? Like what do you recommend as a treatment? Well, the problem is, you know, that's the treat. Like the way that I have wrapped my head around this is that the treatment is that. Mm-hmm. 
everything else, we're sort of palliating symptoms or mm. putting Band-Aids on issues. So you can use lube and you're making a, a canal more slippery. Mm -hmm. But as we talked about earlier, just because you're using lube and something's good, it still is uncomfortable. Yeah. And then you can use vibrators and toys and everything else. But if the well is dry, they're not going to be... What about some of those su suppositories that you can use, vaginal suppositories that are mm -hmm. like uh, moisturizers? Well, there's one that I like called Reverie, oh, yeah. which is, it has hyaluronic acid in it, which is what makes your joints slippery. So the lube in your joints that makes the surface slippery, that's a, a really great non-hormonal, non-medical, natural option. The coconut oil, I mean, there's things that, that women can use that are natural that can make it more comfortable. CBD and THC products applied vaginally. There's something called Foria Relief, which is a THC-based suppository, which has been really effective in managing menstrual cramps and pain, as well as vulvodynia. Um, they have uh, Foria Pleasure, which is THC-based also, which is uh, in coconut oil. I have women apply that topically directly to the area of discomfort. It functions to relax the smooth muscle because when women are experiencing pain, frequently there is a reflex contraction of the pelvic floor muscles, which then makes things worse. And cause, it's like a tourniquet effect and then more inflammatory mediators get released. So relaxing the smooth muscle is really important. So there are Those other are options yeah. that can help to make things more comfortable, but to address the issue itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, but those are great options too. So we have one question from a listener. Our question for today is from Louise. And Louise says, uh, I seem to have pain only in certain positions when I have intercourse. Does that mean there's something wrong? Should I get an x-ray? What should I do? That's a good question. I like it for a couple of reasons. One, that she's trying other positions and multiple positions because frequently women won't be able to experience orgasm in certain positions and, and trying new ones and, and experimenting with that. It's important. If she's experiencing discomfort in certain positions and it's important to know what is it, is it pulling, traction, praying, bumping into something— Sometimes women will have, whether if their uterus is antiverted versus retroverted. So tipped. Tipped direction, in one direction or mm -hmm. another with banging into the cervix can cause discomfort. Sometimes based on the angle of the vagina, normally it's supposed to be kind of banana shaped, like curved down. Sometimes if it's not, if it's straight, if the woman has prolapse or some other anatomical things and the shape or the angle of the vagina is different, different positions can put pressure in areas that are uncomfortable. So I guess what I would tell that lady is to speak to her OBGYN, get an ultrasound, to see what, know or what her internal anatomy exam, is. Internal exam, maybe. Internal exam for sure, and and a um, and an ultrasound because you can't really see from an internal exam from just feeling. You can't necessarily see everything. Um, on an ultrasound, you can see how things are positioned mm, good and point. and um, good and point. go from there. Good, good point. So. First, an uh, internal exam, definitely an ultrasound if it's still having problems, mm -hmm. and to really explore it because there could be a lot of things going on. I like what you said. Before we end, I wonder if there's a tip that you have for our listeners that they could take with them. I think the most important thing is that women 
recognized that sexual health is a critical component of general health and wellness. It's not something that should be overlooked or put aside or, you know, swept under the rug. And that you speak to your healthcare provider about your symptoms. And if you're not getting the answers you need or want, then in today's world, the patients, the consumers, they're educated. They, you know, with social media and with what's available now online, people are coming into my office informed and armed with information and they want this or that. So it's our responsibility as healthcare providers to educate and to treat. And if you're not getting the answers you want or the treatments you want, keep seeking because when intimacy starts to decline in a relationship, that, and this is something that I've learned personally and professionally over the years. I remember we were talking about Oprah earlier, back in 1998, when we right at the time my sister and I were going on Oprah and there was somebody on there like right before us or after us and she was promoting I don't know if it was a book but it was like just do it women (laughs) you just do it and I was appalled I was like how dare her say that just do it hell with that like if I don't want to do it like you know forget (laughs) it but over time I've learned that men feel intimate and connected to us as women from when having we're having sex, sex with them. Yeah. And if for whatever reason we pull back due to mm-hmm. pain, due to discomfort, due to irritation, annoyance with him, whatever the reason, if we withdraw and withhold sex, then they become less emotionally available and connected to us. They're not, which then makes things even worse and we want to have sex with them even less and it becomes a vicious circle. So intimacy and sex, sex is the glue of relationships and what connects us. And when that starts to fall apart, it can lead to... Yeah, I, I love that you said, because I think so many times um, in your, like in a general practice or even in gynecology and urology, a lot of our sexual health is overlooked. And what you're saying is so important that your sex life is your sexual health. It is your your health and it's the health of your relationship. So I love what you said that it is a priority. Thank you so much, Jennifer Berman. I loved everything you had to say. You actually helped me a lot. I learned some (laughs) new things, and I feel more concerned and more comfortable about my sexual health. (laughs) I have more questions. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter. Or send me a question. The Trouble with Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab, New York City. Our L.A. studio engineer is Aaron Steinberg. This episode was mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Bruce Hirschfield.